The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life. And then continuing through verse 7. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. This is the word of God. Before we get into the word this morning, I just want to spend some time in prayer. So if you'll join me. Lord, we read in Psalm 46 that you are the God of refuge. It says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Lord, there are many among us this morning who who may feel like the earth is giving way and the mountains are being moved into the heart of the sea. Lord, we pray for Bob Bratcher with his upcoming heart surgery. We ask that you'd keep him safe, that you'd bring him through to health again. We pray for Jerry Judge with her cancer treatment that's going to be starting. God, we ask for a foretaste of the new creation where there's no more sickness, no more death. Lord, heal Bob and Jerry, we pray. And Lord, we we ask that you'd sustain not only their bodies, but even more than that, sustain their faith. Let them see themselves as citizens of the city of God, where gladness flows like a stream throughout that holy habitation. God, your word promises that God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. I pray that Bob and Jerry would know that help. I pray for Judy and for Nancy also, who are caught in the middle of these crises. And Lord, in line with Psalm 46, we pray that you would cause all of us to see ourselves as living in your realm, behind your secure walls. Often we have too small a view of you, Lord. So small that that you don't enter our thoughts for hours or maybe even days at a time. The world is too much for us. We, We run after, we tightly grasp things that can't make us happy in the end. Sometimes those are dangerous addictions. And so we pray, God, for any in the midst of us who who are still struggling with addictions of different types, we ask that you deliver them, God, by your grace. But Lord, most of us, though, we're, we're just undone by relatively good things that we've set up as functional gods in our lives. We've looked to 
these created things as ultimate things, but the more we hope in them, the more they turn on us, and the more we turn on each other. So in any areas where our priorities or our loyalties and our hearts are skewed, we ask, God, that you would restore an understanding of your greatness and your preeminence in our minds. The psalm says, Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. And Lord, we pray that you'd forgive us for any ways this week in which we have fought unholy battles with each other. We ask that you'd enable us to forgive one another just as we've been forgiven by you. And Lord, grant us the rest that we need. Not the rest that just checks out and shuts down, but the rest that you prescribe when you say, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. So be exalted also, we pray, God, in our hearts. We believe that you're with us. We trust in you as our fortress, and now we turn to your holy scriptures, and we want to find hope in your word, God. So give us life this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week, we were in the closing verses of chapter 10, and those verses ended in a way that showed us that um, there's two options in front of us. So it concluded... We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So the stakes couldn't be higher. It's life or death, the destruction or the preservation of our souls. Now, why do people shrink back from following Christ? Why do you think? Generally, there are three reasons. First, there could be suffering. That's what's going on here in Hebrews with the first recipients of this letter, there, there was some persecution coming their way. So that can cause people to turn from Christ. Or it may not even be persecution. It may just be normal sufferings that for some reason they thought they would be immune from. They never thought that it would hurt this badly. Just the normal sufferings of life. And when it's seen that following Jesus means following him through suffering and death, then for many people that's suddenly less appealing. A second reason why people turn from Christ is shame because there's a group of people that they had expected to be accepted by and that's more important to them than being accepted by God. They desire the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God and so they take this priceless treasure that is the good news of Christ and they just kind of chuck it in the dumpster of their lives. And thirdly, people shrink back because of sin. Now you might say, well, wait a minute, isn't, if you turn away from Christ because of suffering or shame, that's sin too, right? Yeah, it is. But what I mean by this third category is that um, there's some sin that's really important to them. There's some pleasure that they demand to pursue, and it doesn't fit with God's timing and God's way. And so they choose the momentary pleasures, the rotting spoils of this world over lasting joy and, and that eternal inheritance. So that's kind of what we ended with last week. Today we're going to talk about the opposite of shrinking back. We're going to look at living by faith. 
This chapter is all about faith. It's, this chapter is to faith what 1 Corinthians 13 is to love. So you're going to hear that word faith a lot. And it starts by giving us a concise picture of what faith does in verse 1. It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So through faith, you can see reality. Faith makes real to us things that otherwise are beyond our experience. It presents to us things that can't be seen with our physical eyes. Now our culture tends to call material things real and the unseen things unreal. But you don't have to look very far to see the the limitations of that worldview because if you zoom out even to think about dark matter or you zoom really far in and think about the tiniest of subatomic particles which seem to regularly exit and re-enter our dimension, it's not hard to perceive that there is a reality beyond that which can be observed and measured. And God has spoken to us about many things that he feels no need to offer to us testable proof because his word should be enough for us. And faith is the vehicle by which God's promises are substantively known and lived by in a way that it impacts both our outlook and our actions. So biblical faith, it's not mere belief, okay? It's not like... um, I believe my sports team is going to win the championship, like, like um, on Friday Night Lights or Ted Lasso. Okay, it's not a look inside yourself and see if you can believe sort of thing. It's it's not a subjective like you have to get into an inward trance and then you can kind of unleash the mojo of belief. No, that's not what we're talking about. True faith is also not some sort of self-righteous groupthink which springs from ignorance and conceit and kind of stirs itself up into this frenzy chanting like, we're right, you're wrong. That's not biblical faith. Faith is also not a fanatical excitement, okay, because that sort of high is a transient emotion and it's powerless to change the heart over the long term. So when we talk about faith, We mean that faith is trust in an outward reality that has been revealed. And so faith is the eye of the soul. It it looks upon evidence that was always there, but for which most people don't have eyes to see. And those who dismiss the Bible's testimony as illegitimate, who say, well, you you can't look at this book as credible, um, they say we have to look for answers that are only contained within our universe. So a supernatural book doesn't count as evidence. But that's, if you think about it, that is a decision of a starting place that's a different faith. Pastor, scholar Al Mohler helpfully puts it this way. He says, all convictions on ultimate authority are based on faith commitments. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. It's not that Christians are people of faith and atheists are people of reason. Everyone has an ultimate intellectual starting place, a system of beliefs that are basic to their worldview. Atheists operate from a worldview that's based on a set of assumptions and presuppositions that they have received by faith, secular naturalism and materialism. The Christian, however, accepts the biblical worldview as his ultimate intellectual starting point. Again, not against evidence and reason, but in concert with them. So as we go through Hebrews 11 and 12, a big underlying question is going to be, how will you define reality? 
by the boundaries given to you by the surrounding world or by the supernatural word. And if you decide that, well, you can only live by what you can see and what can be proven within this world, if that's your decision, well, I'm never going to convince you because you've decided not to accept an authority beyond yourself. You've, ex- you've decided that um, what you yourself can prove is the only thing that matters. And that makes you feel strong and independent and credible in society at large. But the book of Hebrews starts by recalling evidence that, that people of the atheistic faith reject. That long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke by the prophets. And in these last days, he has spoken by his son. So true faith deals seriously with the revealed word. But unbelief rejects the word outright. So throughout this chapter, one question is going to be, will you be controlled by God's word or by the voices of the world in which you live? And we'll think about that by viewing a number of people as examples. Verse 2 says, For by it, by faith, the people of old receive their commendation. The people of old This is kind of an incredible passage because we're going to learn from ancient people. And um, we're going to say, you know, we're really not that clever. And we're not really that unique. The human plight hasn't changed that much throughout history. And that sort of outlook is not popular with modern man. We like to to be the authors of our own answers, don't we? Our culture says that that, um, we're the best. It's, It's a you know, a crescendo, and we're at the top. We assume that just because we have electronics and we have space exploration, therefore every generation before us was relatively ignorant. And that's the height of our hubris. So my prayer is that this morning God would actually grant us humility to wrestle with the accounts from these people who live long, long before us. And for the rest of chapter 11, we'll survey Old Testament history to see how individuals live by faith. And if you've been around the church for very long, these verses are probably familiar with you. It's nice to to have passages that are familiar to us, but it can also be dangerous. I want to warn you away from a way of reading this chapter that is kind of like a sort of hero worship. Like, if only I could be like Abraham. If only I could be as great as Moses. Then... I would please God. That's not the point. The way we need to read this is not be like this person, like some sort of motivational talk with graphic examples and Vince Lombardi quotes. That sort of try harder, be like them motivation, it's not going to get you very far. Instead, we're meant to see in their faith what true faith is, and then we're meant to have that faith in God not to have faith in our own faith, if you know what I mean. So it's, it's quite simply about trusting God. It's not about conjuring up some sort of mysterious force called faith within, of our, within ourselves. So I hope that this is an opportunity for us to kind of learn how to better read our Old Testaments, that we're always going to keep God as the main character of the Bible, not any of these messy people, even in their own narratives. They're not the main character. And the people in this chapter aren't heroes in the strict sense of the word, but they were commended by God. That's why we're looking at them. And this is one of the main takeaways from this chapter, that all it takes to be commended or approved by God is faith. 
So let's not overcomplicate things, right? The enemy of our souls wants to intimidate us. He wants to make us feel like garbage because we haven't done anything great for God. And he wants us to think that God is impossible to please. And God expects from us that which we can never perform. But the truth of the matter is that if you trust God, he is so pleased with you. If you believe what he has said, if you believe his word, if you believe what he has now spoken through his son, then you are commended by God. And that should make you glad. It should make you feel secure. It should give you a sense of peace. Instead of frantically trying to guess, how do we please this angry God? We can remember what Jesus himself said in John chapter 6. When people asked him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So if you trust Jesus, God is pleased with you. He smiles on all who live by faith. Just remember that as we go through chapter 11, that these people weren't commended because of their great deeds. They were commended because of the faith that resulted in God accomplishing memorable deeds through them. A lot of times, without them even suspecting it was going to happen. So faith is the root of all good works and holiness. And when these unseen realities, through faith, the unseen realities become so real, so present to us, the result is that we can't really help but live in ways that work in line with that unseen world, not just according to the world we see. So let's get started seeing this faith in action. And in verse 3, we get started at the very beginning. It says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. That's really cool, the Greek word for universe here. It can mean either the ages, as in time, or it can mean the world as in our spatial reality. It can mean time or space. It's, it's interesting in light of the, you know, the model of space-time continuum that Einstein and other physicists developed. The universe. The beginning of all things. It just, what this is saying is it can't be explained by evidence that's available to our eyes. Without faith, we simply can't understand the origin of the world in which we live. Because some, something beyond a physical reality is needed to explain the beginning of a physical reality. And you may say, well, it, there was no beginning, or it was, it was the Big Bang. Okay, what was before that? Even if you had something more powerful than the James Webb Space Telescope, and you're able to look back, and you're able to see when the star systems first emerged, you'd reach a point where there was no light. But theoretically, you've got this super condensed ball of matter. But why and how? Where did that come from? Is a ball of matter your origin? Is it really that hard to believe that someone unseen was behind the origin of our space-time? Especially when he's revealed himself through clear writings as wondrous as the Holy Scriptures. And if you've experienced the miracle of new creation within yourself, then it's really not a stretch at all to believe that in the beginning God created the reason why so many people find it hard to believe is because they desperately want to go on trusting only in themselves instead of needing to rely on a higher being. But faith understands the reality of the situation that we're actually formed in the first place and we are sustained day by day by the word of his power. Now from creation, we fast forward to the second generation of humanity. 
And it says, by faith, Abel offered to Cain a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. If you're not familiar with this narrative, it's in Genesis chapter 4. Cain and Abel were Adam and Eve's first two sons, and Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a worker of the ground. They both brought sacrifices to God. Abel brought sacrifice of um, a, a lamb from his flock, and Cain brought some, um, some fruit or some grain that he had grown. And it says that the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but had no regard for Cain and his offering. Cain did not have an acceptable sacrifice. Is it because Cain's heart just wasn't in it? Is it because Cain didn't give of his best? Or is it because this was to be a guilt offering and the Lord wanted to emphasize that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sins? We're not explicitly told in in the Genesis passage, but we know that Cain is jealous and he's angry and he strikes his brother down in the field and the Lord tells Cain, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And we're told here in Hebrews that not only does his blood, but his faith continues to speak. Now, even though Cain and Abel seem, I mean, really, really far removed from us in the past, this is actually a great example for our endurance because this first death, this, this was a righteous man who was just trying to serve the Lord, but he was hated and he was killed for it. And you know, we are like Abel because we are approaching God with the right sacrifice. We are approaching God through the acceptable sacrifice, Jesus Christ. And not only are we like Abel, but Cain will always try to kill Abel. The cultural mainstream will always rage against those who approach God through the acceptable sacrifice. Of course Christians are being killed in North Korea and imprisoned in Pakistan and systematically robbed and abused in Nigeria. Of course Christians here are targeted to be purged from university faculties and corporate leadership and medical professions. So, rather than letting that intimidate you, have faith and preserve your soul. Abel isn't just a sad victim, he's actually the first victor. Through his faith, he still speaks. And will the same be said for you and me? When we pass from this life, whether it's through unnatural causes or natural causes, will the thing people remember be our faith in God, our reliance upon him? Will we trust him even unto death, whatever that death looks like? And will you let your faith point others to Jesus the same way Abel's faith still does? Verse five, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. If you're not familiar with this narrative, it's found one chapter later in Genesis chapter 5. In verse 24 of that chapter, it just says, I mean, it's, it's pretty brief. It says, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. He was translated out of this world without seeing death. That happens one other time in the Bible with Elijah. It's a little more flashy then. 
But it's cool when you think about that, why does death exist? Why do we have to die physically? And it's because it's a curse on this earth because of sin. And that means that God can grant reprieve anytime he wishes. He can bypass physical death if he wants. And scripture actually teaches that those who are alive when Christ returns will be caught up together with him in the air and will be changed in a moment without death. But even if, as is probably the case, you are going to pass through death, you're not, we're probably not the last generation of humanity, Enoch is still a trailblazer for us. He serves as evidence that there is a spiritual world that our souls are going to step into. And even if we die physically, the life that's lived for the world to come is not wasted. It does escape death in the end. Most likely for us, we will escape death by being saved through death. But either way, Enoch modeled for us that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And those who walk with him, that eternal life starts today. And it never ends. Do you believe these words of God? So Enoch walked with God, and it's that walking with God that's really the focus of verse 6. If you remember at the end of chapter 10, God said, My righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So here we see that God did take pleasure in Enoch. So much pleasure that he brought him without death into his presence. How do we please God? We've already talked about this, but like Enoch, we please God by believing that God exists. And by seeking him, because we believe there is a reward to seeking God, there is a reward to walking with him. No one can walk by faith unless he believes that God exists and believes that God rewards those who seek him. And I wonder sometimes, is this, is, is, is this why prayer can feel like such a project to us or such a, even a chore sometimes? Because we don't actually believe that he rewards those who seek us, who seek him. And we tend, you know, in, in our human relationships, we tend to avoid people where we, we feel like they're just a taker. They just want to drain us and demand from us. Do we sometimes believe that lie about God? The truth of the matter is that our God isn't ultimately a taker. He's the most generous of givers. And when we avoid him, we are the ones who miss out. He rewards, he richly rewards those who seek him. Not only in the future, but now, he gives us everything we need for today as we seek him. So faith seeks God. Faith walks with God. The more popular alternative is just to ignore God until a crisis comes in your life. Many people speak as if God exists, but then they don't seek him. And that's unbelief just as much as atheism. Enoch reminds us of the joy of intimate fellowship with God. It's not just about doing great things for him. It's not just about having correct thoughts about God. Enoch walked with God. It's about the relationship. Are you walking with God? You need to stop this afternoon and sort of recalibrate. Get back to the basics. Take inventory of your life. I know I need to do that from time to time. Am I walking with God? What does it mean to walk with God? Well, the, the full experience of that is going to look a little bit different from person to person, but certainly it's going to mean talking to him. And certainly it's going to mean listening to him, hearing his voice and his word. And it's going to look like surrendering to him moment by moment, whatever we're going through, 
God is there with us. Are you enjoying walking in God's presence? It's a walk that starts now and it continues forever and it gets closer and closer and it is a source of the greatest joy. Enoch shows us that being in God's presence is actually much better than a long life. Do you believe that? Do you believe that being in God's presence is better than a long life? Enoch didn't draw the short straw. The dead in Christ won't be sorry that God took them when he did. Their faith has a reward. And they will rejoice when they're in his presence. Our last historical figure for today is in verse 7. It says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. You know, the flood is one of the more mocked claims of the Bible, uh, and yet the geological features of the earth testify to its reality from um, the remnants of marine life in Colorado to the formation of the Grand Canyon. Even ancient history and anthropology testify to the reality of the flood. One scholar notes that not surprisingly, practically every religion and mythology from Asia to North America remembers Noah and the flood. A Sumerian tablet from 1600 BC tells how a king was warned about a destructive deluge and therefore built a great boat. In Akkadian, there is the Atrahasis epic, which tells of a great flood that destroyed mankind after earlier attempts to curb its wickedness. Only Atrahasis and his family, who were warned by the creator God, escaped in the boat they were told to build. And then this saga seems to have provided the source material for the Babylonian epic, Gilgamesh, which tells a similar story. And while these and other examples are corrupted by pagan ideas, they preserve a shared memory. The scholar goes on to say that Noah's name seems also to have passed down into one language after another. In ancient Sanskrit, his name became Manu, based on the word Ma for water, thus the name is Nu of the waters. And this was passed on to ancient India, where Manu was the father of all peoples. Egyptian mythology named its water god Nu, and the mythical founder of the Germanic peoples was Manus, from which we get the word man. So, you know, that's not the main point here, but if you're looking for evidence like that, it's there. Like, there's evidence in nature and in anthropology that these aren't just fables. The text here says that Noah was motivated by reverent fear. He recognized the holiness of God and he trusted that being in line with God's commands would work out better for him than meeting the expectations of his neighbors. And, you know, that fear is, that's important. What we fear, that's another way to ask, in whose good opinion do you really trust? Whose good opinion are you terrified to lose? If we fear God rightly, then all other fears are going to be dispelled. It's interesting that it says in building the ark, Noah was condemning the world. And faith does that. It condemns the world. When you put a light in a dark room, what happens? It, it exposes what's really there or what's really not there. Similarly, the faith of a righteous man both exposes and condemns the disobedience of the world. The world hates us, and, and yet it turns the tables 
and labels us as the hostile ones. Oh, those Christians, they just hate the world. They're just tied up in a knot and, and all their scruples and they can't enjoy life. But of course, if you've ever met a really godly person, like you're probably immediately struck by their incredible deep happiness. Not worn on the sleeve, but a sober and contented joy that this world has not known because it's a happiness based on the world to come. But people don't want to see that joy. They, they want to be able to laugh and to dismiss the old preaching about righteousness and judgment and a need to seek the mercy of God. And Second Peter 2 says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. No less is required of us. We have to tell others about God's holiness, about his justice, his truth, his goodness. We have to tell them that there's a reckoning at hand. They will ridicule you, they will slander you, they'll seek to intimidate you. So you need to make up your mind now that you're going to live by faith, regardless of what others say. Now how long is is that going to have to go on? For Noah, 150 years. Sorry, 120 years. He, He was required to stand alone in his generation. And if you're going to walk by faith, you might feel like you're alone in your generation. Are you willing to stand alone? Maybe at school, maybe in your workplace or your neighborhood. Are you willing to not be cool, to not be understood? Are you willing to sometimes not be welcomed? Or is that too hard and will you shrink back and be destroyed? Don't shrink back because salvation is at hand just as it was for Noah and his family. You know, the ark is a picture of the church. If you look Biblically, theologically, the ark is a picture of the church. And so British pastor Peter Lewis explains that like this. He says, Christ Jesus is our ark now. Big enough for the whole world, strong enough to withstand the shocks of life, the rising waters of death and the upheavals of the last judgment. There is safety here in the Son of God, sent to be for us the shelter, the salvation that we so desperately needed. Our ark is and safe passage into the new world God has planned. And from that ark, we will emerge to inherit a new heaven and a new earth. And this says that Noah became an heir of righteousness by faith. Righteousness came to Noah as an inheritance. This is another way of saying that by faith, Noah was counted as a child of God. And if that has yet to be your experience, if you feel like I am not an heir of righteousness, here today. I want to make sure that the good news of Jesus is clear to you. That our sin and the penalty for our sin was placed on righteous Jesus so that we could become righteous through union with him. And that's a gift to be received through faith. So whatever you've done, whatever you've thought, whatever you've said in the past, you can become an heir of righteousness today by believing this God who has revealed himself in history Believe that he rewards those who draw near to seek him. Seek the inheritance of righteousness. If you trust in this world more than you trust this word, then, you know, you may get a lot of different inheritances. You may get wealth, power, pleasures galore, but this world is passing. But this word stands forever. So seek his kingdom. Seek his righteousness. And all those other things, they'll be given to you as well in time. Well, these reflections on lives of faith are going to continue in the weeks ahead. And, and 
you know, some people have seen a pattern in the three that we talked about today. Some people see that, you know, with Abel, we get a good glimpse of the start of the life of faith. It is through the acceptable sacrifice that is the start of the life of faith. There's no other way but through Jesus based on his sacrifice in our place. And then Enoch shows that we live the life of faith by walking with God day by day, daily treasuring Jesus as better than anything this world has to offer. And then Noah shows the end of the life of faith because he shows that we are saved through judgment if we are in the ark, if we are in Christ. There is a safe place to pass through the waters of destruction by faith. Now my desire is that each of you would leave this morning with hope. Hope, Hopeful because all you need to do is trust God as he's revealed himself to be. But maybe when you think about the specific situations in your life, what you're facing in the weeks and months ahead, faith feels quite remote and faith feels difficult to come by. Remember that faith is not a mysterious force that you have to conjure up within yourself. When Jesus, in Luke chapter 17, he was speaking to his disciples about the things that faith could accomplish. Amazing things. And the disciples, understandably, felt inadequate. They were intimidated by what he was saying. And so they cried out, Lord, increase our faith. Lord, increase our faith. That's a beautiful prayer. And let's make that our starting place as we go to prayer and talk to God right now. Our Heavenly Father, um, these, these examples before us, um, we thank you for them. And we thank you that it's not because of something inherent in these people that they were commended by you. We thank you that the same faith is held out to us today. If we will simply trust you, if we will simply believe your word. And so God, we ask for your mercy. We ask for more faith. Increase our faith. Give us this sort of life that is commendable to you. We want to please you, Lord. We want to walk with you. So do that work in our hearts, whether for the first time today or recalibrate us today to get back to what we once knew. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.